Landmark. Land. Culture. Belonging. Landmark. Landmark is a six-part podcast series that explores some ideas about who we are and where we are and what it means to belong to this place called South Africa. As you know, we've been on a kind of quest on this podcast for finding landmarks, those beacons that help to locate what it is that makes us belong. Often that starts with some kind of national identity, however flimsy that might seem. It wasn't until I'd moved up to Joburg in the 90s that I was aware of defined cultural ties to a kind of national identity. The southern suburbs were where you'd find Italian clubs and restaurants. There is a Chinatown, as well as Orthodox Greek churches and schools, not to forget the Portuguese and Lebanese communities. Joburg is also host to the huge African diaspora of Zimbabwean, Malawian and Congolese migrants. In the town I was born into, in Durban and KwaZulu-Natal, I'd always sensed an amorphous identity in my own community. Compared with the Zulu culture, we seemed to have a very narrow base for defining who we were. The Zulu could reach back to a memory of family that existed hundreds of years ago. The epic stories of Shaka and the Mbongi praise poems stand strong alongside classical Greek mythologies. Having moved to Cape Town, I'm aware of the immediacy of an ancient heritage of the very first people on this landscape. In fact, the very first human DNA is from this part of the country. In a previous episode, I walked mic in hand with a group of traditional Khoi leaders and a community and observatory near the convergence of the Black and the Lisbjerg rivers where building had begun over what the Khoi community feels is sacred land. Here lies the, the root of the ancestors of mankind itself. And it was here in 1659 because of the very first theft of land which we are actually now standing on. When the title deeds were gifted by the Dutch East India Company to the Freeburger farmers that the original sin occurred. During that march, I found someone who could profoundly articulate what it means to belong when it comes to national heritage, but also when it comes to finding those more elusive landmarks that we're probably not aware of. I'm Deirdre Prince-Solani and I'm a specialist in living heritage or intangible cultural heritage. So I've done the work in that area for the last uh, 15 years um, in different parts of the world, the Caribbean, across Africa, Asia-Pacific countries. Deirdre and I met up a few weeks after the march. The conversation began with another epic national story told by the Lemba tribe in Limpopo province that identifies as Jewish. I chatted to Deirdre about how it came down to genetics, the DNA proof of identity for this tribe that gave the claim some authority. Even though the science of it is way too complex to make it that easy to verify the authenticity of that claim, there are other interesting cultural markers, though. The form of head covering, the avoidance of pork, etc. But for hard-nosed evidence in the Western world, academics often reach for DNA proof. Anyway, without getting too sidelined by this, it was useful as a starting point for our discussion about living heritage. Himmler Sudio was doing this research on genetics and... 
I'd chatted to her about this genetic link to the Jewish story of a black Jewish tribe that had come down to Mapungubwe. And the, the story is that when the city of Jerusalem was raided and sacked by the Romans, they fled towards Yemen. And there were two groupings that came down from Yemen to Africa. And one stayed in Ethiopia, and one moved down the Sephalas on the east coast. And then eventually moved up the Limpopo towards cities like Mapungubwe and Great Zimbabwe and others. So they have this heritage Mm. that comes from this great biblical history. Mm. When she was doing the research, she said the the mitochondrial DNA didn't reflect it. Um, But the male chromosome did. And it was specifically related to the Cohen gene, which is the priesthood. It's that family of priesthood. We were supposed to be Elizinski. Our surname, the surname Isn't Prince, is not meant to be Prince. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah, my grandfather was given the name Prince, but his father's name was actually... Anyway, quite interesting. But again, that's what you're talking about as well, is it's, it's again this thing around place and movement. Eh? Yeah. And what is it that you... Is it, are you not the land? You know, is the land not you? that you, what you carry with you. Um, And so um, there was a couple of thoughts that I had coming from that. But the one one thing that I did want to to raise was around how the science of it can't necessarily, or the Western science, can't necessarily give us the answers. So in a lot of the work that I've been doing in Living Heritage has exposed me to other forms of sciences, which, again, just opens. I mean, it's, it's just, it's so exciting because it opens up a wor- world, actually, not a world. Um, and so you have practices of predicting um, harvests um, and, you know, using the, the cosmic cosmology, um, forms of healing, being, being buried in hot sand, <laughs> for example. Um, so you have all of these these practices that are deeply scientific um, in, in, in other forms. And where Western science has come, like, for example, in the cosmology example, they have found that actually there is an alignment. There isn't a contradiction between what um, elders or, you know, are, are predicting and what the, the Western science is predicting. In fact, the elders are often more accurate. So let me ask this question then. If we're talking in the context of what we both saw on Freedom Day which was um, investing in a, in a history that is going back a few hundred years. What is the value in doing that as opposed to negotiating, as you say, negotiating something now in the present where culture has changed? So what we saw was to get back into the regalia, into the traditional garments that were worn a few hundred years ago and to walk around town like that as opposed to negotiating this interface with modernity and where we are as a, as a nation, as a, as a people, as a Khoi nation, say, as a Kosa nation, as any nation. Sometimes it is necessary to adorn oneself <laughs> um, as a form of reclaiming. And, and I'm thinking particularly about how vicious the colonial authority was, you know, with First Nations hunting on horseback, hunting people and killing people. Um, And if we think about that as the level of physical brutality or body brutality, and then think about the 
mental slavery and the mental enslavement and the destruction of a culture with equal weight. So the, the, the brutality of the attack on the body should be seen as almost a metaphor for the attack on a people and a people's identity. And so in some ways, I think that the, the, the need or the desire to adorn oneself and to dress oneself in order to claim an identity is part of that reclamation process. It's a part of saying, I'm identifying in this way and recognize it. Recognize me for, for who I am claiming to be. Coming back to the questions around the claims of First Nations in the Western Cape, the claims of, being, of speaking First Nation languages and so on, are we not asking the wrong questions by saying, are they really authentic? Because that, that, is, is that really the question we should be asking? Should we not be asking questions about how are people seeking identity and seeking belonging and making meaning of what remnants they do have in order to make that? So I think that's my long way around of coming to this question of, you know, who's right and who's wrong and whose claim is more right and more wrong. And we often, with the, with the training that we do in Living Heritage, we often, we remind people all the time that authentic is not a word that we use because authentic claims um, judgment. It claims that someone out there knows better um, and it calls into question something which um, another person holds or believes to be valuable and be to be to value. And then in, in, in the context, you know, I had... Um, a friend who works, he works with, particularly with young people in gangs and on the Cape Flats. And it's something that I did many, many years ago when I was much younger, um, working with young boys in particular, uh, adolescents who were wanting to leave gangs. And so the program that we were running, it's like an exit program, you know, back into society, <laughs> to use that language. Um, and one of the things that became very clear to me, and this was long before I started working in heritage, was the need on the part of these young men, or adolescents becoming young men, to have a sense of identity and a sense of continuity of good. Like, what? who are we? Who, who am I? What, what are the stories of my people that I can be proud of? And... Because of colonialism, because of apartheid, because of the weight of poverty, it's very often um, those things, they, they, they become blurred. They, they almost become lost and they get overtaken by other things. So they get overtaken by rites and practices of initiation into gangs. So they can, you know, and so they become something else. And in a sense... Part of what the living heritage work then is about is about restore, restorative. So it's restoring um, or recovery of memory because, and this is what I was saying to this friend of mine, is that very often there are elements of the living heritage that's still there, that still exists. And because it's in the everyday, we don't recognize it as being living heritage because we want it to be big on one big fancy festival or fancy ritual or whatever. But in fact, it's in the everyday. Um, very often it's in the way in which we name and call each other. It's in the tones that we use when we say good things and the teasing that we, <laughs> that we do in Afrikaans 
which will be very different to what we would do in English. Um, and that's all a part of living heritage. Let me ask the question then. What's in your head as you think of these? Are there, are there phrases? Are there examples? Well, there's one in particular that's been on my mind for the last couple of weeks, and it's related to June 16th, 1976. My, my sisters and I were having a conversation across Netherlands and here about our memories of growing up. And we haven't spoken about how we reacted to very specific things that happened in our community because we were growing up in Athlone, so growing up on the Cape Flats. So before Anton Franch was captured, there were um, there was a presence, a military presence in Athlone. And my sisters and I, because at the time you don't you didn't tell your family what you were doing and where you were because you needed to protect them. We were all doing various things that we were not allowed to speak to each other about. And so there was a sense of anxiety and fear when, for example, there was a Casper parked on the pavement of our house um, for days um, and not realised, not knowing, you know, what, what its presence meant and what it was meant to do and so on. Anyway, so to come to the phrase... So there was this phrase which Anton Franch, when he when there was a standoff between himself and these 41 soldiers who were attacking him in the house that he was taking refuge in, and the phrase which was then taken up just last year by um, Fanny Cup is Kohal Me. So it's Ko K K O with a cuppy on the O Kohal Me, and it was. Yes, come and fetch me. And it's like a taunt, you know, kohal me. I don't know, but there's, I don't so <laughs> there's a way in which you say it and there's a way in which your hands move when you say it. But it was, I mean, he used it in that context, but I've also used it in a context with a standoff between two gangsters who had just been released from prison wanting to attack my sister and me being, so, so you know... So it's like, come at me, bro. Come at me, just give it, give it to me and I'll show you equal. You know, it's like... And so, so there's these phrases in our language, embedded in our language, which carry certain things about us um, and, uh, and which is a form of continuity, which I think um, needs to be explored, needs to be restored, recovered, and, and, and in a way celebrated in, in some cases, not necessarily, because it, it comes with, uh, with some really negative um, things. But... So there's that, and then things like Scufton in, in, in on, you know, with, with mine workers or here. Scufton is such a common phrase, but Scufton means a package of food to take with you, take away with you, whether you're leaving home to go back to the mines or whether it is going from coming from the Eastern Cape, coming to Cape Town for work as a domestic worker. So there's... There's, there's, there are histories that rest underneath the ways in which we speak with each other, um, which is a part of this living heritage, you know? And so, and, and, and often I think people confuse, I think living heritage has got to be only rites and practices and songs and poetry. And yes, it's all that, but it's also what we find in the everyday that's kind of a signifier to a whole range of other things which tells us that there's a continuity to our belonging. Okay, so if you had to go back to that point where there was a moment that you decided this is what I should be following 
in my life. This, this idea of intangible heritage, this working with community, this, this understanding has come from stories that are part of you. Tell me some of those stories and maybe go back to a time in your life where that realisation started to emerge. Mm. A friend in the UK recently asked me about my experiences of apartheid because it was always such a vague thing to her and she'd met me after democracy so she'd never known me you know in the earlier years and so I'd, I'd sent her a couple of videos for her to watch to kind of like get a sense of what life was like and placing myself you know like I was at that funeral or um, we lived on that street and, and, and so on and so on um, to give a sense of what it was that that kind of nurtured who I am now. And I, and I mean, I've said this to my father as well, just recently around this, this almost knee-jerk around justice. Just injustice of any kind is wrong. So don't name me a cause in isolation of another cause. They are all interrelated in my view. So whether it is earth, whether it is water, whether it is... Um, yeah, all sorts of things. They are all interrelated. Um, and that, I think, comes from all these various strands. My first experience of apartheid was when my mum, I think I was five, four or five, I can't even remember, and my mum went into a shop in the Free State and she was told in front of me, very rudely, that she needed to go achtentu, she needed to go to the back of the shop to go and buy what she needed because people of colour were not allowed to enter through the front entrance. So my first awareness, kind of rational awareness, of what this, there's something not quite right in my beautiful child, childhood world, was that, you know, um, this person that I admired and I respected and who was my everything as mothers are, well, most mothers are, um, she was being spoken to in a manner that was just not acceptable. And anyway... Um, so there was that awareness, and then also that we as a family, because we traveled and lived in many in different places, both my parents, every time we were in Cape Town, they would take us in the yellow Peugeot 404, and we would go to Claremont, and we'd go to Wesley Street, which is where my mother grew up, and there would be stories about auntie so-and-so and uncle so-and-so and the neighbor and the bubby shop on the corner you know used to buy on, on the bookie the bookie system and how they used to catch the train to go and listen to opera or to watch ballet because they my mother's family was very big classic music that's why she played piano as well so there was all that you know, and the Ian group, my mum and her family sisters were part of the Ian group. So, so there was all that. And then, of course, going to Livingston um, Secondary, which is where I went to school, and which was a great privilege because we had elders like Otto Dudley and uh, Neville Alexander. I mean, they, they, these were the kind of uh, the people that were part of the schooling system. And my 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 mum and her siblings were part of that as well. So these were the stories that I grew up on, you know, and, and with this incredible sense of, and even now, like, you know, we'd, we would uh, walk through and we'd recognise, even though the landscape has changed so much, the stories that we were told. Um, and in Wesley Street, the stories of the Acha Americans, you know, so the Coon Carnival and memories with my cousin who's now late and, and the teasing that would go on. Um, and when we were students, when I was a student at Livingston, we would go and run these streets 
you know, already there were families that were forcibly removed, such as ours. There were others, a few that remained and were removed in almost my final year of schooling, high school. Um, but already the landscape was changing, but we were running through it. So we were running through these streets that were not ours. <laughs> you know, they, they, were, they now belong to some other people. Um, and my father would similarly take us to uh, the land in Vasco, which my grandfather had bought very painfully and very slowly because there were eight children and he wanted to make sure that each child had a property. So for someone who was very, very impoverished um, himself, he slowly accumulated all of this land, you know, with the plan that his children would at least have um, property. And then that was gone. And so there were stories about um, that land and about my grandfather and my, my father growing up drinking goat's milk, not cow's milk, and, you know, all these amazing stories. Um, and then obviously, because my father was a priest, a minister, and my mom a teacher, so with all of the traveling, we also found ourselves in homes, because there would be these home visits, and we'd listen, because our parents raised us, you know, to be feminists and to be radical. So we would be sitting in the company of elders, which was not always allowed, so we would listen, eavesdrop into these stories, incredible stories about travel, about accomplishments, about family histories and who's connected to whom um, and some incredible thing that somebody has done. So my father would tell stories about his best friend who was this incredible artist, but because of apartheid, couldn't practice an, as an artist and so worked as a spray painter. And now I'm very good friends with his niece <laughs> and I enter the home on the Cape Flats in the township and there's all this artwork on the walls which really belong in a gallery. And so there's this, this, this sense of continuity, you know, that I, that me personally, I have stories and these stories, there's a sense of continuity of these relationships and people in place that I can identify with and accumulated some of my own and made some of my own as well. Um, and then the, the, the work with... You know, at Livingston, the way that the schooling system worked as well, because we were being taught by some radical teachers, you know, they were really leftist teachers. Um, and so R.O. Dudley one day walked into the classroom to teach us maths. I think I was about 14 at the time. The maths teacher wasn't around. He walked in and he started talking about the great mosques of Libya and this of Algeria and whatever. And of course, we were sitting like, okay. We'll get to the maths eventually. And of course we did. But we got to it through this incredible lens of centuries of discovery and documentation and, and so on. And that's how, you know, <laughs> you, the world was so much bigger than what we were. Anyway, um, and then obviously the work that I was doing, because even as a, as a youngster, adolescent, I was going and working with children and telling stories. I loved storytelling. Um, and uncovering stories and sharing stories. And then re and again, this deep realisation that a sense of pride and a sense of belonging is so related to I have a purpose and my purpose has a past, but I am going, you know, I, I can be the determinant of what this future is going to be. And so long before we were allowed into museums and galleries, you know, exposing children through the stories that, you know, that I was crafting and, and telling and so on, 
there were these linkages made with the living heritage and with language and with stories and so on. Um, and then I went into working in tangible heritage, so in museums and world heritage sites, so the physical, um, but realizing just how none of that was of meaning if we didn't look at the, at the living heritage. So we went to Gonda in Ethiopia and we were doing, we were, there was a, a training session and the big question I kept asking was, I want to know more about the ways of being in the world of the people who built these castles. I want to know more about the ways of being and the ways of knowing of the people who built this library. More than the physical, than the fabric. More than the restoration of the building, the built fabric. And it was interesting because, just thinking about that particular occasion many years ago, um, there had been an, a, a, an intervention that was made for the restoration of one of the buildings and application of lime. Um, and it didn't work. And then it was the local artisans who said, we never dig for the lime there. We always dig for the lime there. We never dig after it's rained. We dig for it then. There was this incredible knowledge system that was still there and we knew that the failure of that first you know um, intervention came from the fact that it was about western science western knowledge and the use of lime but there was no engagement with the knowledge that was already there around which was very scientific around the when and the where's and the hows um, and that awareness just grew for me you know, of the value of living heritage, both from a from a human perspective and humanity, but also just in terms of this built environment that we celebrate and, and spend too much effort and money on, <laughs> on protecting at the cost of the living heritage which has given birth to it. One of the shared aspects of COVID has been a very heavy sense of loss for all of us. In the most obvious terms, we all carry that in ways that are hidden sometimes. In some cultures, they're literally worn on the sleeve. And if you can read the signs, if you're aware of what is being expressed in the visual language of mourning, there is the potential for deep empathy for what someone else is going through. Um, in, the, in the Kosa tradition, which is not mine, but from what I know, is that you would wear something to signify that you are in a period of mourning. And... Whoever can read that, again, this is now about a, a, another kind of languaging of our culture and our cultural practices. Can we read the signs? Can we read the symbols? And so there'd be something, an armband that somebody may be wearing or, or some or the head shaved. And there's a recognition that this person has lost someone. And so myself, as an as the in the you know, entering a space or encountering this person, I should do everything in my power not to elicit the ire or the anger of that person because the spirit of that person must be kept calm because they're going through a period of mourning. That's a part of what I would call living heritage, that you'd be able to read the sign, interpret it, and know that that's a way of being in the world, that you don't do that. And very often people don't recognize it unless they are from that particular culture or or in some, you know, became familiar with it in, in another way. And so during this period of COVID, for example, 
um, I have been literally vis- looking for the visible signs because I know that we have lost many, many loved ones. There's no family that is unaffected anywhere. Um, and so what are the signs that we're giving to each other, you know, to indicate that there has been loss? And so how does that then invite compassion in our interactions with each other? Um, and that goes beyond the boundaries of black and white and from Europe or not or whatever. That's just because in every culture there are certain rights that, you know, have been, yeah, kind of continued in some form or the other. And, I mean, I just, in my interactions at the supermarket and so on, because people have been familiar with me, they've been familiar with me with my mum because I would accompany her shopping and things like that. There's just this very beautiful compassion, you know, with which people engage with me, <laughs> obviously being aware that there has been a loss and that it has been so recent, you know, and, and also talk, talking about their own loss as well. So I think that that's... And, and again, that's for me the wealth that we have. Part of my work and why I'm, I'm a little frustrated with how South Africa as a nation or as a, the government or whatever hasn't done anything about living heritage is that the wealth is, is immense. It is infinite. If we were just to begin the process of documenting, like what is it that is living heritage in the city of Cape Town? How do, we, how do we document what is there? How do we celebrate that? And how does that open up opportunities for mediating contested and conflictual relationships between people um, where it helps to build understanding? Because my attitude of kohalme, someone else will interpret it as being aggressive and being... Um, conflictual and whatever, you know, it's like, but if you understand kohalme and all the variations of what it can mean and doesn't mean, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> you know, we, 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 we get you. Yeah. But if, if, if that is not, yeah, if, if we don't have that, it's very hard to build relationships of meaning across these very, very conflictual. Um, Stands and I think, and and part of it I suppose is also just. If I think about loss, I mean the land loss, you know it's is real, <laughs> you know in 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 my family. My mum, they lost the farm in the Eastern Cape, they lost the Claremont house. My father, they lost Vasco, the properties in Vasco. This land was just taken. Yeah. You know, they were forcibly removed. So my grandfather had to move from the land that he had bought to a little house in Elsie's River. And growing up as a child, I witnessed my grandfather going through periods of real depression as a result of it. And then obviously, you know, he was a very dignified, very classy man. Um, And so there would be these moments where we would visit and he would not be seeing anybody in his room. And there'd be moments when he was being himself again, you know. But, and there are many stories like that. I mean, this is not in any way just our family. It's so many. And those wounds are still there. And so even though my son, who is 13, 
um, will say to me, oh, mom, you know, I don't want your wounds. The consciousness, this awareness of it is there, you know, that this is what has been lost. And so, yeah, I suppose that, that, that thing I was talking about earlier about restoration, a part of that is this recognition that there has been this loss. And how then do those who have privilege, because they have gained through someone else's loss, how does one then mediate that in this place? <laughs> well, that's, that's a great question. And as you say, you know, you, we need to learn to ask those amazing questions to elicit some of the answers. Because mm. the answers are quite complex yes. um, in themselves. But just getting back to your son, because that was a very yes. wise kind of um, reading of, of your situation. Mm. You mentioned him um, learning language, yes. which is uh, an aspect of this idea of belonging. Mm. Because you spent some time in Kenya, mm. and then you came back, and in both places, he's attempted to grapple with the language. Say something about that story. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think there's two, there's two kind of tangents for it. I think the one is growing up his first few years, formative years in Kenya, where Swahili is the language. And he was so comfortable in his skin speaking Swahili that when we would go on often on work missions, but also on holidays, we'd go off to Lamu Island, which is where you know, kind of the kind of epicenter of Swahili culture in many ways, like Zanzibar and so on. Um, and he would be speaking Swahili that was so fluent and wasn't Sheng, which is like the, the, the yeah, which is found in Nairobi. He was speaking such fluent uh, uh, Swahili that he would literally be taken into homes that I've never been into in Lamu because people loved having this child who could speak Swahili. And so he's understanding around belonging and place and feeling like he belongs is very much intertwined with language and the fact that the language gave him um, the resources to be able to navigate all of these different spaces. So, you know, he was he's a child, he was a child, he's now an adolescent, so a totally different person, but he was a child who would be able to navigate between working with a chief and an ambassador and, you know, going into the land and, you know, farming. <laughs> so he was able to navigate all of those spaces because there were these resources for him. So on a return to South Africa, he was suddenly being asked questions about his identity, which was so, and the identities that he was being presented with as possibilities were so rigid. So your mother is colored and your father is black. <laughs> and, and he was... Mommy, what's this? That was that was one of his first questions when after we moved back. You know, like, what is this? This thing of coloured and black? Because in the context of um, Kenya, you are African. He's <laughs> like, no, anyway, colorism or, or whatever of, of that nature. So he he just found it. He really struggled with that, and also the perceptions that came along with it. So the perceptions that came along with what it means for your mother to be coloured. So then suddenly it's like, what am I? Who am I? Um, but language, being home, being the, the kind of internalized home, we had this long discussion about which languages, in addition to English, he'd want to, be, want to speak. 
Because obviously it's difficult in Cape Town, the Swahili, because there's not many who speak Swahili. And very often um, the Congolese um, residents in Cape Town would speak Swahili, but a different kind of Swahili as well. So it was a choice between Afrikaans and English, uh, Afrikaans and Kosa. And for a while he toyed with Afrikaans because there's something lyrical in the language and in the way in which in our family, my family in particular, we speak Afrikaans and so on. And he was like, he really wanted to learn Afrikaans. But then spending more time with his dad up in Joburg, he was like, no, but actually I want to be able to speak to my cousins. I want to be able to hear Kosa. So that'll be my choice. Um, and then because of the nature of our family, we decided that he was not going to learn Kosa in our suburb, <laughs> that he would need to go to a place where he could speak and learn Kosa, where he would be immersed in the language and be surrounded by it. And in the Cape Flats, where the delineations are still very strong from the apartheid period, it meant another place adjacent to our suburb. Um, and he started classes and it, it was, I mean, he loves it. He loves, and he loves the language. So he's always studying and learning and listening and so on. But then it became, I became aware of the fact that there was, there was teasing that was going on in the, in the class, not necessarily with the, with his age mates, but with a, a, a different group. And it became quite problematic because it was reiterating some of the stereotypes and the prejudice which he was encountering, you know, in Joburg and so on, around your mum is coloured, your dad is black, and so what are you doing here, and, and so on. And in the conversations with his father, between his father and myself, it was around this realisation that there are stereotypes that exist across various identities, and that what our son was experiencing, he was, being, he was caught in the middle of these, and where he was refusing to be the child who would be tutored in his suburb, he was actually going to a place where what the children are familiar with are children leaving the township for better resources, leaving the township for better opportunities. And here's this child from the suburb who is coming into the township because they, he wants something better and there are better opportunities for him. And there's this disjuncture between like what is there, you know? And, and so, yeah, so that's the, the, the challenge that we have now. Um, obviously with COVID, we've decided, with the third wave, we've decided to discontinue much contact anyway <laughs> so it will return hopefully when the stats start declining and we've been vaccinated but um but yeah that's the dilemma you know that there are these perceptions stereotypes that exist between people and it's not as if they are unwarranted so when when um for example i would be recognized or identified by someone else as a colored person and there's a negative reaction to me my reaction is not to that but to understand that it's coming from 
experiences which someone has most probably had on the Cape Flats. Um, and so there's, there's a woundedness that is being projected onto me, which I must own, because in, in that particular space, I was probably quite privileged. Well, that's that's a very yeah interesting observation. As is the the, the notion of disjuncture. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've got a friend who who stays uh, occasionally in um, Santbai near Hermanus, and mm -hmm. he was cycling through the township there, and he's been on a really strong journey of of rediscovering um, intangible heritage and um, the wounding that's happened in this country. Mm. Reading Bessie Head, reading um, Sol Pleike um, and various others. Mm. And that, that reaction to what people are confronting you with is quite important. Mm. Because he was cycling and a man ran towards him with a shambok mm. and was very aggressive mm. and swore at him, a, a, a resident in the, mm. in the township. And you can see the anger. Mm. And I think it was useful for him to actually stop and not to react at all. Mm. Because, mm. And he understood where it was coming mm. from. He mm. you know, we understand the wounding and the hurt. Mm. Um, and it's, I think it's, it's a very, yeah, that, that whole disjuncture, that, uh, mm. the, the way that you've put it, is a very important consideration for everybody in this country mm. at the moment. But it's how to, inst you know, how to instill that sense of calm yes. in a way, in the, yes. much the same way as we have the funeral calm. Yes. How do yes. we get to a point where yes. South Africans are going, oh, yeah. I see you. Where there's not the heightened sense of aggression. Yes. There's no fear. And fight. Fight or flight, as I was saying to you the other exactly. day. Yeah. Is it fight or flight? Yeah. 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 I think that's, that's the hard work. And I think that that's the work of building our nation because I think our na we, we are still quite immature <laughs> as a nation and and a part of that um, of that maturity is that learning and unlearning and the ability to be self-reflexive like why am I reacting this way what is it about this interaction this engagement that has led me to feel fight or flight or everything else in between you know what is this reaction that I'm having and um, what the, what are the triggers that are there? And I and I think that in our children, and that's partly why it's so important that my son said, "I don't want your wounds." Um, it's his recognition that the wounds are horrible. I mean, he, you know, <laughs> there are certain films I can't watch, <laughs> and there are certain things. Yeah. Anyway, so he recognizes that. So he has to then recognize what the triggers are, so that it doesn't trigger him. And that he acts to those triggers in a totally different way, um, because I'm also learning and unlearning, and you know, and we it never ends really. Mm. Um, but but the starting point is really to be able to to interrogate that. And you know, I have a really really beautiful, really good friend who who some time back said to me, "I'm going to be paying for my privilege until the day I die." And she, she has, I mean, it's, she's very practical, so very clear, not very emotional. So, so she's got very clear missions that she accomplishes, you know, and she's done it in her past and she's doing it in her present. Um, and she's very clear about that, you know, that 
identifying firstly that the wealth that has been accumulated has been built on wealth that was accumulated because of privilege and recognizing that her process of belonging and and calling herself South African is meaning means that into her future she will continue doing this work um, you know which she does with such grace and I think that that's that's an incredible point to reach, you know, where, where there is that recognition. And, um, and it's not driven by guilt. Because for me, guilt of any kind is destructive. It's like, it's erosive. It's like, it's like a... It's false. Yes. And, and eventually, for me, it leads to resentment and bitterness and uh, disappointment great disappointment when someone with a shambok chases you on a bicycle and in your head you are on a journey <laughs> yeah the person chases you you know it, it leads to something which is far more dangerous in a way you know the lager <laughs> and so on so so when it comes to that point of beyond guilt i think it's a good place This six-part podcast series was partly sponsored by the National Arts Council of South Africa. Artists in South Africa during COVID were offered a small fund for developing work. For us on Landmark, it seemed that during a time of contemplation about who we are as South Africans, during a time when time stopped, the ideas about identity and belonging were helpful in assessing where we could go to in the future. It was also useful to understand what the creative, imaginative seeds are inside each one of us that grow a sense of purpose in our belonging. So for the next season of Landmark, moving into 2022, I'd like to explore more of those seeds of the imagination. Some might be eccentric and unusual, some curious and surprising for actually popping up in South Africa. Most of them are driven by personal stories here in Cape Town. The National Arts Fund only covered six episodes, and this is it. Any further exploration is driven by our own time and resources. If you see some synchronicity between your interests and ours, consider being a sponsor for the show. Drop us a note at ashley at storytovoice.com, that's story to voice with a number two in the middle of story and voice, or at the Facebook page, at Landmark Podcast. See you next time.